Welcome to a community-supported and guest-produced edition of the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from NPR, Ring of Fire, Real Time with Bill Maher, Counterspin, and The Young Turks. Let's start with Moyer's documentary, Buying the War. Here's a clip in which Walter Isaacson, who headed headed CNN during the lead-up to the war, talks about how many journalists felt restrained from reporting critically on the Bush administration's plans in Iraq or Afghanistan. There was a patriotic fervor, and the administration used it so that if you challenged anything, you were made to feel that there was something wrong with that. And uh, there was even almost a patriotism police, which, you know, they'd be up there on the Internet sort of picking anything a Christian Amanpour or somebody else would say as if it were disloyal. We interviewed a, a former reporter at CNN who had been there through that period, and this reporter said to us, quote, everybody on staff just sort of knew not to push too hard to do stories critical of the Bush administration. Especially at right after 9-11, especially when the war in Afghanistan is going on, there was a real sense that you don't get that critical of a government that's leading us in wartime. That's a clip from the new Bill Moyers documentary, Buying the War. Bill Moyers, welcome back to Fresh Air. Um, what are some of the other things you learned in this documentary about how CNN tried to prevent coverage from being too critical of the Bush administration in the lead-up to the war? Well, during the Afghan bombings, which were our retaliation, the U.S. government's retaliation to the 9-11 attacks from the base of Osama bin Laden, CNN reported and showed some of the, uh, you know, what we call collateral damage, the human cost, the human deaths and the human uh, calamities that resulted from our force. And when they ran on CNN, Walter Isaacson and the producers and reporters there uh, heard from what Isaacson called the, poli- the Patriot Police, the corporate uh, executives, as he says in my broadcast, some advertisers, and in particular the uh, watchdogs uh, on the right who believed that showing anything negative about our response to the Taliban and to Osama bin Laden uh, was un-American. Uh, And he felt that pressure every day, he told me in my interview with him. And and he warned his staff, he says, not to focus too much on casualties in Afghanistan and to balance reports on those casualties with reminders of the damages done to America on September 11th. Yes, he wrote a memorandum, which uh, was finally leaked to the New York Times, and and he told his producers, his reporters, his staff, that um, if they did continue to show uh, the, the... human casualties of American force, they needed also to remind people that uh, there had been the casualties caused by the terrorists at 9-11. And it was his way to try to keep putting into context, because of the pressure he was feeling and getting, to put into context the cause of the bombing that produced the the, uh, the deaths and, 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 and the destruction uh, from American firepower. Now, as you point out in your documentary, at the same time that CNN is trying to be very careful about not being too too critical about what's happening in Afghanistan and always reminding people that this is a response to September 11th. Fox News is trying to position CNN as being the liberal news network. Um, And by liberal, they meant, you know, the anti-American, anti-war network. How effective do you think Fox News was in, in giving CNN that reputation as being liberal and biased. 
I think Fox was very effective. They exploited the emotional sentiments and the passions and the fears that had uh, risen in, the, in response to the terrorist attacks on, on 9-11. And it, it, you know, when Pearl Harbor was attacked, many Americans rallied, of course, naturally and patriotically to, to the administration, the Roosevelt administration. This happened uh, in 9-11. Uh, people were uncertain about the sources of this uh, this terrorism, they were scared that there would be more of them, and there was a feeling, you know, punch the guys back in the nose, go after them. Uh, and I, I, I decided to do that. I knew one night late when I was wa- watching the Letterman show, the David Letterman show, and Dan Rather was on, very emotional about the impact of 9-11 on him. He'd been down, looked at the casualties in, in the World Trade Center. He'd looked up and had seen uh, human beings throwing themselves out of 40, 50-story uh, buildings with flames licking uh, at their heels and hurling themselves to death. He was very moved that night on the Letterman Show, and that's when he said, you know, wherever the president wants me to do, whatever the president wants me to do, I will do it. Dan says in the broadcast, in my documentary, that, you know, he regrets that now, although it was a legitimate feeling. All of us were feeling that. My office is only... Uh, a mile and a quarter from the World Trade Center. My wife and I were there working. We, we were feeling this, uh, these, these, these sentiments of you know wanting to find out who did it and get back at them. I think that's a natural response. Fox came in, uh, put on the put the flags in their lapels, put the uh, martial music on the screen, and. Uh, and 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 started exploiting that uh, that that fear and that passion and turning it into a sort of a pro-American, pro-war uh, sentiment, and it put everybody else on the defensive. If you if you begin to be skeptical of the administration's claims, once the White House started saying that that uh, Saddam Hussein was behind this, uh, they'd come after you and say, you know, you're undermining the president, you're undermining the credibility, credibility of your commander-in-chief, what's wrong with you? And that had a very powerful effect on people, on journalists. Did it have an effect on you ever in the back of your mind when you were having critics on of the Bush administration and during the lead-up to the war in Iraq? Was there ever a voice in the back of your mind saying... This might be devices for our country to hear this. This might undermine the Bush administration when we need our country to be strong. No, Terry, I didn't. You have to remember that I was there in the 60s in the early days of Lyndon Johnson's escalation of the war in Vietnam. And we made so many of the mistakes that the Bush administration uh, began to repeat after 9-11 that I had a strong sense of... uh, of deja vu, and the fact that I had come out of an administration that had um, had misread uh, intelligence, that had leaped to premature judgments, that had uh, gone to war on a suspicion, uh, made me uh, much more skeptical, I think, than anybody else. I mean, like a veteran of a war <laughs> is more skeptical of going back into of what war really is than somebody who hasn't been. So I felt our obligation, that our mission as journalists at that time was to challenge uh, authority. It was not to take the president uh, at his word. It was to ask uh, the questions that a, that a country needs to know before it sends its men and women into combat. So, no, I never thought that. And I mean, I had people on who were for the war. It was interesting. The neoconservatives w- would would not come on my broadcast. Uh, they they wanted to go into friendly, hospitable uh, environments. Uh, but I had a number of members of Congress who supported the war. I had uh, others who, the journalists who, who were pro, uh, administ- pro the administration, but I also had a lot of early critics. In fact, it was on my show 
uh, now with Bill Moyers, that um, uh, that Joe Wilson made one of his early appearances. And we now have uh, a record uh, from within the White House that people watch that at the White House and begin to say, this guy Wilson is somebody we have to uh, have to get after. So, no, I really felt that our obligation as journalists was to ask these questions and, and give the critics of the war a hearing. To this interview, just looking at uh, looking at just incredible history of Henry Rollins. You're a patriot. I mean, when you we distill everything, you're a patriot. What, what what does that mean to you? I mean, it, it means to be kind of a wild ass in a way, because to me, patriots they're kind of not exactly crazy, but they were innovative. You know, when you look at you know your, your Franklins or your Jeffersons, they thought outside the box. Mm. I would love to think I do now and then. But it came from a punk rock sensibility in a way, like, you know, no way, you bastards, I don't think so, not on my watch, Mm -hmm. and that's why we have America. We left and came here and said, don't you tell me how to do stuff. <laughs> and, and That's a patriot. That, that is a patriot, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and, and there's a rebel nature in it. When you think really think of patriot, that's what it says to me. It's not status quo. It's like when Goldwater, when Goldwater says, I don't care if the guy's straight as long as he can shoot straight. Mm-hmm. That was his, his take on gays in the military, and he was done with it. Mm-hmm. I like that. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's kind of a Vermont kind of thought. You'd think America would be perhaps the one place in the world where Bill could marry Tom. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, sure. where, where they go like, well, hell yeah, it's America. <laughs> you know, you two gay guys, you wait, here, here's some rice on you, in your hair. You know what I mean? We, we'd be celebrating that diversity. <laughs> we were built on that diversity. Absolutely. You know? And when I see these people with their signs, God, hates, whatever, I go, man, you... Get out of my country. Don't tell me to get out of yours. You're you're in the wrong place. Yeah. And this really gets me going. Yeah. Also, they don't these a lot of people on the right, not a lot of people, there's, there's that crazy group. They don't want to shoulder the responsibility and the sheer weight of freedom and democracy. You know what a tough road that is oh, to, to, be, to say, yeah, you're you're you got a, a neighborhood that that's in bad shape. We got to fix that. And when the, when these Republicans go like, it's not up to me to fix that. Less government, less taxes, less. No, no, it, it is our. He, he he's your countryman, the guy in the ghetto who can't read. You gotta help him. He's an American, mm-hmm. and and that's where I say, I go like. How dare you wear that American flag pin on your lapel? Get that thing off. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know what country would take you. Yeah. For, you say it so well in Romanitarian. I love this quote. Do you know what parents consider themselves when they bury their sons? Will you admit that you never knew what you were doing and you were never ready to give what you made others give? That you 
are and always will be a coward, a weakling who preaches strength, who sends in the best to do the worst. And we've lived with that for seven years, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. And how these people, it was incredible to me when Bush did his, not here, Mm -hmm. no WMD here. Like, whoa, who told you that was a good idea? There's people burying their kids. And when you go to Walter Reed, I wish everyone could walk down those halls and meet some of these young men. I've not met an injured woman yet. I've been to Walter Reed and Bethesda Naval uh, several times now in the last three and a half years. When you meet a young man with both legs gone or an arm and an eyeball gone or facial reconstruction or part of his brain missing, I have met all of the people with these kind of injuries. When you really see what it looks like, smells like, when you try and consider what their lives are going to be, a lot of these people are married. A lot of them already have kids. The kid's looking at his at his dad. The, the wife is looking. The, the moms are often, it's the hardest part of the day is dealing with the moms. They're trying to be so brave. And this is how they get treated? This rich kid did this to them? It's enough to, I don't know what to do with that anger when I walk out of yeah. these places. Yeah, I'm, I'm already mad, yeah. but I walk out of there just kind of, kind of just literally speechless. Is any good going to come out of these dark 12 years that we've had to endure this GOP dismantling of democracy? I mean, is there Absolutely. Any... Like the great Ian McKay said, you know, he said, these administrations come through town like weather, and sometimes they wreck the joint. Mm-hmm. And it's up to the good people of America and the world to clean up. And we got a lot of cleaning up to do. And I think we have enough really strong and wonderful people who are bipartisan when they look at Katrina and go like, hell man, give me a shovel, I'm in, I'm helping, I don't care who you voted for, I'm helping you. And America's full of those people. There are three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, Dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. During the lead-up to the war in Iraq, Phil Donahue had a short-lived show on MSNBC. And um, he says that um, his show was perceived as too liberal, and he was given certain guidelines to follow to balance the show in the way that the editorial staff wanted it balanced. What were the guidelines he was given? He says that uh, he was told that he had to have two conservatives for every liberal. And uh, they counted him as two because he was pretty outspoken. But when he would try to have uh, Scott Ritter, Scott Ritter was the weapons inspector who was uh, reporting from Iraq that there was no truth to these allegations about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. So when when uh, he always had to balance uh, someone who was skeptical of the war with at least one and usually two supporters of the war. He says in the documentary, in my interview with him, that that came directly uh, from management. When the Donahue show was canceled, MSNBC and NBC, its parent, 
said, well, it was because he wasn't doing that well in the ratings. Donahue insists that he was holding his own in the ratings, not setting the world on fire, but he was holding his own, and he is convinced, as in fact we learned from another memo, internal memo of MSNBC, that was also leaked. We learned that uh, an internal memo at NBC said, look, we don't need a face, the face of a liberal a critic like Donahue at this time of, of a need for patriotism. Now, a lot of your documentary, Buying the War, focuses on the Washington Press Corps and uh, how you think they bought the war. And Buying the War is the, the, the title of the documentary. And, and you know, an example that you give is, um, and, and this is a, a kind of processing example, you, you talk about the day that uh, Judith Miller and Michael Gordon had a front-page story in the New York Times saying that Saddam Hussein was on this worldwide search for materials to build a nuclear weapon and that they'd gotten their hands on aluminum tubes which could be used uh, to build a nuclear weapon. And that same morning, uh, as the New York Times story appeared on the front page, what happened? Uh, Vice President Cheney went on Meet the Press, and when pressed by Tim Russert about the story on the front page of the New York Times, Cheney, who had not, who had refused to talk about issues of national security, intelligence like that, said, well, you know, we have it confirmed by uh, the story in the New York Times this morning. Now, that story uh, was a leak from the administration, so you had, in, the, in essence, the leaker, uh, being asked by a mainstream journalist to confirm his own leak. It wasn't identified as Cheney's leak, although I have no doubt but that it came from, from, from Cheney's office, and we learned a lot in the Libby trial about that sort of thing. So it was a sort of, you know, it's a cliche to say it now, but it was a, a, it was a perfect storm or a perfect triangle. The government leaks uh, an intelligence report. It's a wrong intelligence report. It's a false intelligence report, but they leak it. Uh, the New York Times prints it, and the talk shows on Sunday confirm it. Uh, by 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 actually having the leakers on to say, well, the New York Times says it, it must be so. I, some people in my broadcast say this was the consummate moment when it was clear to them that uh, that there was a collusion or at least uh, an embrace of the administration and the mainstream media, particularly the Sunday uh, the, the the broadcast networks on um, uh, on going to war. And another version of how this might have happened is given on your show, and that version is that a third party, maybe Ahmed Chalabi, uh, tells Judith Miller and um, and Michael Gordon about these aluminum tubes, also tells the Bush administration. So when Judith Miller or Michael Gordon goes to the Bush administration to confirm the stuff about the aluminum tubes, they, got, they have that information, they'll confirm it, but it's from the same source, and that source is still never... The information is still never really corroborated. That's right. On my Friday night broadcast, I do an interview with Carlos Bonini. Carlos Bonini is the Cy Hirsch of, of Italy. Uh, he's Rome's um, leading investigative reporter. He's got a new book out called Collusion, in which he talks about uh, the story of the yellow cake, the, the story that Saddam Hussein had, had sent his agents to Niger uh, to buy the so-called yellow cake that's needed for uranium enrichment. And... Uh, and Bonini's book uh, reports with documentation how that story was fabricated by a shadowy figure in the uh, Italian underworld with contacts to the Italian intelligence agency, their CIA, which is called SISMI. Those forged documents and those documents that the President of the United States quoted, in effect, in his State of the Union message, 
that intelligence from that forged document was taken by Italian intelligence through Silvio Berlusconi, the Prime Minister of Italy, to the White House. Berlusconi wanted to ingratiate himself uh, to President Bush, so he was brought this information about Italian intelligence discovering this document that confirmed the report in Niger. Bush was uh, was impressed with it. The U.S. intelligence called Britain, called the Brits in, in London to see if they had the information. They had the information because Italian intelligence had taken it to them, too. So they, they, they took it as confirmed. They were both confirming the the, uh, the the their use of a of material that had been forged and given to both of them by inta- Italian in- intelligence. It's the same sort of, sort of circular uh, process that was going on between much of the mainstream media in this country at the same time. Um, why do you think that the Washington Press Corps bought the information? First, let me say there there were exceptions, and and, and our documentary reports on what the then Knight Ritter uh, Bureau, led by John Walcott, a crusty veteran of many years of covering Washington, and two of his uh, star reporters, uh, Strobel and Landay. I mean, they were ahead of everybody on this story. They were skeptical from the beginning because they had sources deep inside the military at the level of the colonels and, and, and the majors, and they had old sources of theirs inside the intelligence agencies and the State Department. And they were on this story from the very beginning, the story that the intelligence was being cooked, that uh, there were real questions about whether or not Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and that that uh, that Saddam Hussein did not have any ties to 9-11 through al-Qaeda. They were only the story, but because they don't have an outlet in Washington or an outlet in New York where the news capitals of America, they were ignored by the mainstream press. But back to your question as to why it happened. Well, first of all, there was the emotional response to 9-11 in which many journalists like Dan Rather on the, Dan, on the David Letterman show were deeply affected by the sneak attacks that cost so many thousands of American lives. And, and, and their judgment, of, their skepticism was suspended in that time uh, of trauma. It's, it's also the sin of being inside, the sin of in, I call it. I mean, we learned in the Vietnam War that, that early in the Vietnam War, that if the president said there was a threat, then the reporters and the editors tended to believe there was a threat, but they didn't ask for the actual evidence. It was the reporting of David Halberstam and Morley Safer and, and, um, and Peter Arnett out in Vietnam that very quickly in Vietnam, uh, undermine the authority, the official view of reality by reporting facts on the ground. We didn't have that kind of reporting uh, in the build-up to the Iraqi war. There were no, there were few American reporters there. They couldn't get to uh, the stories that would counter the official view of reality that was being passed out gratis in in in, in Washington. Then you also have uh, Terry. This powerful, ideological, partisan press, talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, um, uh, uh, the bloggers by this time, whose mission is to advance the political uh, aims of the Republican Party. This press is part of a political movement so that anyone who reports uh, what is contrary to their view of the world, who reports information, news that, that seems to contradict their principled, their principal political leaders, the president and, and, and the administration, uh, they, came, they come down hard on. 
So you had you had the willingness of the mainstream medi- press to go along with the administration because they see themselves as the extension of authority and power, and they're in the game. And you have this relentless beating up of any dissident mainstream journalist who deviate from the official view of reality by a political press whose main interest is in advancing the administration's arguments and case. Like every day is the same and I'm left to discover on my own It seems like everything is gray and there's no color to behold They say We all remember the day that little George took off his cowboy costume, dressed up like a real fighter pilot, strutted across the deck of that aircraft carrier, arms to his side, and stood under a sign that said, Mission Accomplished. He smiled that peculiar monkey smile of his and told us what a success his Iraq operation had been. That mission accomplished sign was put up by Republican PR types at Karl Rove's request almost four years ago. That mission accomplished sign proved to be as much of a fraud as most everything else the Republicans have sold us in the last 12 years. Mission accomplished? Well, several months ago, a retired general and former head of the National Security Agency named William Odom criticized the Bush administration's decision to go to war with Iraq as quite possibly the worst military decision that the United States has ever made. And we all remember Republican Senator Chuck Nagel describing more troops in Iraq as the most dangerous foreign policy blunder since Vietnam. But in true knuckle-dragging fashion, Bush chooses to listen to war hawks in his administration the Warhawks, who, unlike General Odom, have never suited up in Army fatigues, let alone stepped on a battlefield. So it was really no surprise to learn that when 16 different intelligence organizations collaborated on a report that says that the war in Iraq has actually promoted terrorism than prevented it, it's no surprise at all to understand that Bush has ignored that. Instead of spreading democracy, our commander-in-chief has done nothing but spread anti-American hatred around the globe. With every report that surfaces about prisoner torture or secret detention facilities, new terrorists are becoming energized. Bush has given bin Laden exactly what he wanted. Our troops are involved in a war with no end in sight. Security in the Middle East has been destabilized entirely. More and more countries are beginning to share bin Laden's hatred of America. And the U.S. is caught up in yet another GOP blunder that has us trapped in paying what's going to become $3 trillion for our suffering. In five years, we went from having 
having unprecedented support from the global community to being regarded as the biggest threat to world security, and even more of a threat than the terrorists that we've set out to destroy. The shrub again this week has pleaded with Congress to please don't take away my play money to pay for what he still calls his war on terrorism. And he makes that plea knowing that intelligence reports unequivocally say that the Iraq war has spawned a new type of terrorist. They're no longer the somewhat organized al-Qaeda types. We're now facing fragmented ideologists who only wish to do harm to the U.S. Bush blunders like the Iraq war have given terrorists recruiting tools and places to ply their trade, places to provide a training ground for new terrorists. Iraq has displaced Afghanistan as the terrorist hotbed in the Middle East. Rather than fighting the terrorists where they originated, we're now facing them as they pop up in Iraq. In spite of all the reports telling Bush how dangerous this war is in promoting terrorism, this administration continues to insist that Iraq is the key to the war on terrorism. It seems that they're unable to accept reality and just admit that they were wrong. Again and again, Bush has been warned by former generals and former military officials. He's been warned that Iraq was the wrong war at the wrong place at the wrong time. And most of you are no doubt as tired as I am of listening to that GOP babble about how we have to fight the terrorist on their ground, or we're going to have to fight them here. Well, the truth is, if we need to fight the terrorists of 9-11 in the place where they were financed, in the land of their birth, if we really believe in all that babble about fighting terrorism where it originates, we need to deploy our troops to the home where 15 of the 9-11 terrorists originated. That place is Saudi Arabia. The truth is, we no longer enjoy the status of being a beacon of democracy with the support of the industrialized world behind us. Instead, we've become that crazy uncle that everyone hopes isn't going to show up for Thanksgiving dinner because most everything he does is a disaster. your new documentary it examines the coverage uh, TV and, and newspapers in the lead up to the war. I'm wondering if you think that there's a, a kind of false way of measuring fairness that, that might sound like fairness but you think maybe isn't really as accurate as it seems or you know, in, in terms of actually measuring fairness? Splitting the difference between two opinions uh, does not get you to the truth. It gets you to uh, another opinion. Uh, I believe that we journalists are obligated to get people as close as possible to the verifiable truth, no matter well, you're what. You're talking about having, like, 
the guy from the left and the guy from the right and yeah. saying, well, the truth uh, the, is somewhere re- in between. The Republican Senator, the Democratic Senator, saying, okay, you decide uh, what the truth is. Uh, I believe we journalists are obligated to get people close to the verifiable truth and that what I, the conclusions I reach, the analysis I make, are substantiated by the evidence I've collected. Uh, that's, that's what I mean by credibility and it's what I mean by, uh, by judgment. We make a judgment based upon the information. Our judgment has to be compared to the credibility of the information. Let me just say one thing about buying the war. People say to me, people have asked me, why is it important that it happened four years ago? Well, this war is still going on, Terry, four years after the collusion between the mainstream media and the administration. If your fire department in your neighborhood is in collusion with the arsonist, you want to know about it to avoid the fire next time. If the dog doesn't bark, you want to know if the dog is licking the boots of the burglar. Is, is, is collusion too strong a word? Oh, I think it, I think collusion was a very appropriate word for some of members. Remember, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of members of the press. Everybody didn't collude, but some did. I mean, the the Weekly Standard, uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, uh, weekly newspaper in Washington, was taking leaks from uh, the Pentagon and printing them and putting them into the argument. No, there was collusion between some members of the press, no question about it, uh, and with the defectors, with Amak Chelly, Shalabi, and uh, and people like that. There was collusion. In some, there was uh, being used as an innocent or idiot fool. You were basically accused by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting of having a liberal bias. And and we learned that uh, Kenneth Tomlinson, who was pointed, appointed to serve as chair of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting by President Bush in 2003, had commissioned a study spending $10,000 to investigate whether there was a liberal bias on your program. What have you learned about how that investigation was conducted and what the criteria were for measuring if there was a bias on your show? Well, what the Inspector General of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and members of Congress learned is that uh, Kenneth Thomason did not uh, act in a straightforward and and he did not he didn't play by the rules. He he uh, misused the Corporation for Public Broadcasting money. Uh, he singled out now with Bill Moyers uh, for a bias that didn't exist. Uh, we know that he uh, was trying to uh, discredit the kind of journalism uh, that we were practicing. He tried to accuse us of, of promoting a liberal agenda. You know, for years, the right-wing movement has um, branded anyone who was critical of them uh, or who didn't report the world as they see it as liberal. Uh, you know, there's no question. I came out of, uh, of two liberal administrations, the Kennedy-Johnson administration 40 years ago. There's no fact, there's no hiding the fact that I believe that it, collectively we can do things that we can't do individually. I don't think markets solve all of our problems. If that makes me a liberal, I'm a liberal. But in my journalism, I believe in trying to get people as close as possible to the verifiable truth. And our reporting was about the very issues, the war in Iraq, the growing inequality in this country, uh, the decline of the middle class, uh, outsourcing, offshore tax havens, all of that, that was at odds with the view of the world being promoted by the ideologues in, in, in Washington. And... Uh, 
Unfortunately, um, uh, Mr. Tomlinson, whom I had wanted to meet, I wrote Ken Tomlinson three times and asked him if I could come and meet with the uh, with the board of the Corporation of Public Broadcasting and find out what why they were so restless. Because I I was present at the signing of the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. Uh, we believe that the Corporation of Public Broadcasting should be a heat shield to protect the producers and journalists of the National Public Radio and Public Television uh, from the very kind of political uh, motives that were driving uh, Ken Tomlinson and the and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and you know all of this came came out in the investigation by the in- Inspector General of the CPB and by some inquiries from Congress, and and Kenneth had to resign uh, from his his office. That's the past. I don't know what uh, Ken is doing now. I'm back practicing journalism, and I'm practicing the kind of journalism that either will stand or fall on the documentation and the evidence that we offer for the reporting we do, and that's what I think all of us should, it should be about. Did you actually get to read the study that Tomlinson commissioned of your show? No, I mean, I could have, but I didn't want to it. You know, he'd hired some old friend of his to do this report that uh, would was, was, this guy was supposed to watch the broadcast and report to Thomas and what was on it, who was being interviewed. As I said in a speech I gave after I retired in, in 2004, uh, voluntarily from the show, uh, all Kenton had to do was uh, call me and I'd tell him what was on, or all he had to do was watch the broadcast and he'd find out what was on, or he could even read the TV guide. And I'd offer to give him a subscription uh, to it. You know, to this day, uh, I've yet to have a conversation despite my calls and my letters to him with Ken Tomlinson, and I. You know, I'm going to write him. I hear he's uh, he's working on a book. I'll be interviewing some book authors when uh, well, on my weekly show. I'll see if he comes on and wants to talk about about this. Uh, I believe the the job of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is support the independence of uh, producers and journalists in public radio and public television, and 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 whether the Democrats are trying. To, you know, we recently had an example of Democrats in Congress, part of the Hispanic Caucus calling the president of PBS uh, up to the hill to chastise her over the failure of an upcoming series on World War II to include Hispanics. Well, whatever the, the merits of that case, the very fact that members of Congress feel they can call the president of PBS up to, to put her on the spot, I mean, that's exactly what we don't want in public broadcasting and exactly why the Corporation for Public Broadcasting was established. My friend is their appointed duty They keep trying to tell me on April 25th. Bill Moyers. How you doing, Bill? I'm fine, Bill. I'm a longtime admirer. I'm sorry it took us this long to meet by satellite. Same here. But you are uh, you're here on a good week because uh, you have a new show on PBS. It kicks off with this. I watched this excellent uh, first installment about the media 
and the media certainly has been in the spotlight this week. My first question to you is this. After Hurricane Katrina, there was a lot of talk about how the media found its footing again. The media is back. Well, after this week, would you agree with me? No, they're not. They're worse than ever. <laughs> well, there's still world-class journalism being done in this country, but not as much as I wish there were. And after Katrina, most of the press that, lost, that got its backbone and talked about poverty and what's happening to people on the margins, they went back to business as usual, particularly the Washington press corps. But do you agree that it was correct, for example, to, for the nightly news on a, at least a couple of the nights that I watched, that was the, the, the Virginia Tech story was the only story that they aired. Nothing else apparently happened in the whole world that night. Yeah, well, violence and sensationalism and trivia and, uh, and tabloid news dominate uh, broadcasting in, in particular. I mean, there was great coverage in some of the newspapers, thoughtful analysis. But, yes, when you've got pictures like they had, uh, they tend to go with those because sometimes that's all they think they have. All right, I'm going to get you pissed about this yet. Uh, <laughs> Today it's in the news, the McClatchy newspapers that you highlight in your special when they used to be called Knight Ritter. Headline, training Iraqi troops no longer driving force in U.S. policy. Okay, we've been hearing for years now from the Bush administration. This is the cornerstone of their Iraq policy. We'll stand down when they stand up. Today, sorry, we're giving up on that. Seems like a big story. We didn't hear anything about it because Alec Baldwin had a phone conversation with his daughter. Yeah, when, I, when I saw that, Bill, I, I read that story, I thought that um, how many Americans is this president willing to sacrifice on the altar of his ego? Because what he's saying is, step aside, Iraqis, and let, let our guys die. And if you can't, if you can't teach, if you can't train Iraqis to be good soldiers, you can't teach them to be good citizens. So he's giving up on democracy at the same time he's giving up on having Iraqis to, uh, do what American uh, boys are doing. But you know, you made a very interesting point there because in the documentary that airs next Wednesday night, Buying the War, we point out that the, these, these, this crack reporting team of uh, what was then the Knight Ritter News Bureau in Washington was on top of the, of the hoax that was this administration's marketing plan for the war in Iraq. Early on, I mean, within three or four days after the first reference was made to Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11 and Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction, these guys from Knight Ritter were out on the streets contacting the colonels and the mid-level agents at the CIA, and they had nailed it very early. They said, there's nothing to this. But because they're not celebrities, because they're not part of the Washington clique of journalists, because they don't have an outlet in Washington or New York, their stories were ignored. And so, you know, one reason I did this documentary is that we're entering the fifth year of this war. Tens of thousands of people have died and are still dying. And the press has never come to grips with its complicity in helping this administration market a war that is being fought in the false pretense. How do we change that? Well, you know... It bothers me, as I know it does a lot of other people, that we can be really upset about the, the, the carnage in, in, in Virginia, and we should be, but we seem so indifferent to the carnage in Iraq. 
And the fact of the matter is, until there are more Cindy Sheehan's getting out and saying, my son should not go and die in Iraq uh, for the reasons that are being offered, then we're not going to do anything about it. But I wonder if a thousand, a hundred thousand students were, uh, or had their candles and their vigil out in Lafayette uh, Square tonight. Would, would, could, could the press continue to ignore that? Could the White House continue to ignore that? We seem to be shrugging our shoulders at the fact that other people are dying in our name as if, as if you have to be personally involved to feel guilty and love justice. But the fact of the matter is, until the soldiers who are dying in Iraq understand that there are hundreds of thousands of people here who care about what's happening to them, uh, then nothing is going to happen. Yeah, I, I saw on the news, all, all the newscasts showed pictures of the students who were killed at Virginia Tech. Uh, I don't remember ever seeing a picture on television of an Iraqi soldier. And it seems perverse because the Iraqi, the, the soldiers, the, the Americans who volunteered and went to Iraq, to me they're heroes because they put themselves in harm's way. And that's a lot different than just finding yourselves in harm's way. I don't understand why we tolerated so long, particularly the press. Bill, you know, as the documentary shows next week, uh, next Wednesday night, the Washington Press Corps considers themselves, by and large, there's some great journalists there, but not as many as I said I wish. The Washington Press Corps, by and large, sees themselves as an extension of power. They love the access that you get by taking the official leaks and turning them into front-page stories, like Judith Miller did for the New York Times in the, in, the, in the month leading up to Iraq. I don't know why the press corps was so blasé back in, in the early days of the Iraqi war when this administration made every effort to keep us from showing the remains, the flag-draped coffins of, of dead soldiers coming back from Iraq. We should have rised, uh, we, we, we should have been in the streets then, quite frankly. Now, now you were, you were, uh... You were President Lyndon Johnson's press secretary. Now, back in those days, the press seemed to cover up a president's personal foibles, but they would re reveal his public mistakes. It seems well, like well, we've inverted that now. I worked for John F. Kennedy for three years before I went to work for Lyndon Johnson. It wasn't until after Kennedy's death that I ever knew he was a, heard that he was a womanizer. The press was so protective uh, of that kind of privacy. Lyndon Johnson had had been a uh, you know a heavy drinker for a period of time before he became well, wait, president. Wait a minute, you're a journalist and you never heard that John F. Kennedy was a womanizer. Not, I said not while while Have I was in that administration. While I was in that administration for three years, I didn't hear that because the press so protected it in those days. Well, there are no secrets anymore, and maybe that's a good thing. But the fact of the matter is the reason I was so opposed to what I saw happening in Iraq from the first day is because I had been in Washington during that period of time, and I saw George W. Bush making the same mistakes that the, that the Kennedy and Johnson administration made. Premature judgments about events that couldn't be explained, like the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, uh, flawed intelligence, uh, believing in grand strategies and, and thinking you could send ass soldiers to go die for grand strategies. Uh, and when Iraq started, when, when, the, when the President Bush started talking about Saddam Hussein, and when you could see very early on after 9-11 that they were going to shift the focus from Afghanistan, where the real terrorists were, down to Iraq, you know, I saw them doing the same thing that the Democratic administrations did in the early 60s. And that was one reason. I'd been there. Uh, the red lights went off. And, and you said, you know, let's don't make these mistakes again. But we have. And now... You know, we're in Iraq. Our soldiers have been fighting in Iraq longer than it took uh, America to win, beat the Nazis in, 
in World War uh, II. This is an abominable thing, and this decision that he's making to say to the Iraqis, we're not going to train you, it just means perpetuating a war that is already, uh, it, it, it is already hopeless. Come to decide that the things that I tried were in my life just to get high on. When I sit alone, come get a little known, but I need more than myself this time. Step from the road to the sea to the sky, and I do believe that we rely on. When I lay it on, come get to play it on all my life to sacrifice. Hey, yo, listen what I say, oh. I got your hey, yo, now listen what I say, There are lots of ways to communicate with the show, and I encourage you to do so. You can join the community forum to speak with other listeners, send emails direct to me at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com, or have your voice heard by the entire audience by calling the comment line at 206-202-0195. Links to all of these at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Parallels are striking, declares an April 4th New York Times article, quote, bold new congressional majorities swept into power by public dissatisfaction with White House policies. The administration and Congress digging in for a test of wills over federal spending, a watershed presidential election looming, close quote. The Times is trying to point out parallels between the current dispute over Iraq war funding and the 1995 deadlock over Medicare and other federal spending, which resulted in a government shutdown. The upshot? Yet another article warning the Democrats not to do too much to stand up to George W. Bush, since the 95 shutdown is believed to have boosted then-President Clinton's popularity and cemented House Speaker Newt Gingrich's reputation as a zealot. Don't let this happen to you, Nancy Pelosi. But whether this warning ought to be taken seriously depends on how parallel the situations actually are. And on that, the time seems to be stretching. What presidential election, for example, isn't a watershed. But the biggest problem is that the piece doesn't acknowledge the key differences between the two confrontations. In 1995, the Republican Congress was trying to force Clinton to cut Medicare, which is an extremely popular program. The Iraq War, on the other hand, is opposed by the public by about two to one. So, is the Republican effort to shut down the government in an effort to force cuts in a popular program? All that similar to the Democrats' offer to fund an unpopular war, so long as Bush agrees in principle to wind it down in a year and a half or so. I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. I'm choking, I'm choking on the smoke from this burning house. I gone straight, but I can't seem to get out. But who then, who is this that scratching from the ground? Oh, it's my world too, but whose gold is this? I'm digging out when we go where we go and we're dead. Is the verdict still out? Do we get into line to line up with those long dead now? With the muffled tears of sorrow, bones on the ground.
a variety of reasons. The one thing I would argue is let's not go in for simplicities ever. I'm totally opposed to the notion that there are simple answers, that if we get a hold of one answer, that'll do it all for us. That's what I can't stand about George Bush. He has one answer, one answer for everything. We good Americans are fighting evil. It's a bunch of crap. You know, some Americans are good, some are not. Some Islamics are horrible people, some are not. The notion that we are fighting evil, that we are fighting terrorists, and all terrorists are evil, uh, is an absurdity. Mm. Uh, you know, he wouldn't know a terrorist if he met one. Norman Nor Mal- would I. Mm. We're talking this hour with author Norman Mailer about his new novel, The Castle in the Forest. Norman Mailer turns 84 this week. He's been writing at the very top of the American literary pyramid for nearly six decades now. It's a long time. The latest book tracks the youth from his very conception of Adolf Hitler, a project, Norman Mailer says, of the devil. Mailer has been an activist speaking out on many fronts for a long time. Uh, Norman Mailer, if you would, I'd like to listen back to some tape of yourself. This is May 21st, 1965. Uh, You were speaking at one of the largest teach-ins protesting the Vietnam War. Here you are at uh, University of California, Berkeley, on a playing field there, speaking before a crowd of about 30,000 students, teachers, and protesters in 1965. Existence alters the nature of essence. An unjust war, an unnatural war, an obscene war, brutalizes what is best in a nation and encourages every horror to rise from its sewer. The communists could capture every nation on earth but our own, and we would still be safe if our intention were clean. Norman Mailer in 1965 at Berkeley uh, would still be safe as long as our intention were clean. How do you see the American situation uh, now, 2007, this war in Iraq becoming much more than most anyone seemed to bargain for? Well, I don't think our intentions have been the least bit clean in relation to Iraq. I think what we had was a war that began for a variety of motives. There were several principals who were pushing the war forward, uh, the president, the vice president, any number of advisors, any number of neocons. They all had a, a different agenda. The, um, we'll come to the president last. Mm. I think the first and the most important of the people who were pushing the war forward uh, was uh, Dick Cheney. And Dick Cheney, I think, to this day, probably sees himself as a patriot because his feeling about that war was we are heading into real oil troubles down the road. If we don't get some control of some Middle Eastern country's oil in large quantities, we're going to suffer a terrible depression in 5, 10, 15 years Mm. when the price of oil goes sky high because of shortages and we'll be held up by the Middle Eastern countries. So we have to take over a country, Mm. and Iraq is the best excuse because they got that uh, ugly fellow Saddam Hussein there. Let's use Iraq. That was Cheney's view of it. I think the neocons, in turn, had totally different motives. They wanted to bring democracy to Iraq because they felt if, they, if Iraq became a democratic country, then, that would, then at least the hideous war of attrition between uh, the, the Middle East and Israel could quiet down, that it would show the example to other countries that they could live with Israel. It was a, um, a, a noble notion, but completely unfounded. You don't bring democracy to a country where the dominant passion in the two halves of the country mm. is to slay the other half. You don't build democracy on the desire to murder. And on top of that, the the irony and the sad irony of this one is that the situation of the Israelis is now worse than it was before this war started. Mm. And uh, and it was been brought on. That's been brought on them by the attempts of the neocons 
to uh, solve Israel's problems. And the president? That was a folly. That was, I consider that a folly from the neocons. Mm. Uh, I don't even know if the, if the if half of the good Israelis were even consulted on that one. And the and president? Then you come in, mm-hmm. hmm? We come to the president. The president, I think, was the most ignorant president in our history. And he really didn't know what to do. There were a lot of problems in America. Uh, the FBI was uh, leaking with scandals. The Catholic Church was whittled with scandals. At that time, the uh, market was down. There were problems all over the place, and he didn't have a clue on how to solve any domestic problems. And so he thought a war would be great. He'd been a cheerleader. His father had been an athlete, and he'd been a cheerleader. That sets up an unhealthy um, need to, tr- to act out a macho part rather than to be macho. And what could be more of a macho part than being the leader of of the great American democracy in a war against terror. And so he saw it entirely in terms of slogans and was, and the people in Iraq who wanted a war, the Chalabis, all played on that, that notion uh, most intensively. And so we, we went to war in Iraq, and um, we went with impure motives all over the place. And yet, if there was impurity in, 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 around, there was plenty on all sides. Saddam Hussein was certainly no angel, in your in your dualism, I mean, if it's a misbegotten war, I don't know. Can can you bring your God and the devil um, battlefield to this war? Who, who's lining up where? Well, you have to you have to go in for a little caustic counting. Uh, yes, Saddam Hussein was killed. Uh, uh, he was executed. He was dethroned. Uh, but what we've had since then has been a civil war that has gotten worse and worse and worse where the people are living in prodigious anxiety all the time, where somewhere between 30,000 and 60,000 Iraqis have been killed because of that war, which is as much as many people killed in a couple of years as Saddam Hussein has been doing lately. I don't know that we've improved their existence. The saddest truth that has to be faced is that when people live in a fascist country, not everyone who lives in that fascist country is miserable. For a lot of people, what they get is a kind of quiet and order because they are not opposed to the system. And unpleasant and ugly as that is, they may have been living, a great many people in Iraq may have been more comfortable back under Saddam Hussein than they are right now. And, that, and the fact that we may, I don't see how we're going to get to a democracy for that very simple reason. When you have the Shiites and the Sunnis not only hating each other, getting murderous toward each other, but having felt that way for more than a thousand years, I don't know how you can begin to have a democracy. In, in America, for example, we have great divisions between the blue states and the red states, great divisions between, let's say, northeast uh, int- left intellectuals and southern fundamentalists. We're not ready to murder each other at all. We still live in a democracy. We're still willing to work it out through the vote. If we were ready to kill each other, we couldn't have a democracy. You saw how Vietnam came and uh, upset and went. Um, what about this war? What what impact do you foresee for the United States? Leave alone the Middle East for a moment. Have those Americans looked into the maw of this war and begun to close the gaps, uh, the, the, the cultural and political gaps, or, 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 or some other path out of this war? I, I think I feel as ignorant as the people who are leading the war. To it, I don't know what will happen if we were to pull out, for example. They don't know either. They keep talking about uh, an onrush of terrorism, which is a nonsense, I-, I think, for a very simple reason. When we pulled out of Vietnam, uh, there were people who talked about how the 
all of uh, the Far East was going to fall. And in fact, what did happen? Today, Vietnam is a perfectly uh, peaceful country. There's no threat coming to us from Southeast Asia. Uh, all the fears that the communists were going to take over all of Asia uh, didn't come to pass. The Chinese communists had already taken over, so it wasn't. A, it was what it was a question of: is would Southeast Asia turn communist? It didn't. I think much of the same is likely to happen in in the Middle East. Uh, for example, if we were to pull out, the Shiites would be supported by Iran, and the Sunnis by Saudi Arabia and the Syrians. Those countries do not want to go to war with each other. Mm. They'd be very nervous. It'd be terribly expensive for them to go to war. The Saudis could afford it. I don't think the Syrians could, nor could the Iranians. And so I think, on the contrary, what might happen is they might get very cautious, and they might pull back their insurgents on each side and say, this is not the time to fight. Let's wait. We can do better later. What about on the home front? You know, after the Vietnam War had a long tail... What do you anticipate w- with this war? Do you think that the cost of it, uh, the dismaying fact of it, has sobered up Americans, sort of slapped them out of their culture war polarity, or do we go deeper into that? Well, I keep hoping in, that this country becomes a greater democracy, n- not a lesser one. What people don't realize about a, a functioning democracy like America is that it, democracy has an element of love in it. A love of one's fellow human being that's crucial to the continuance of democracy. And love is an emotion. When two people are in love, that relationship either improves or deteriorates. There's no such thing, or let's say the rarest thing in the world is to find two humans who love each other at the same level for many, many years. No, there are periods where they love each other more, and there are periods when they love each other less. And the saddest thing about love, and the most dangerous thing about love, is love can turn to its opposite. It can turn into corruption, it can turn into hatred, it can turn into a sourness of spirit. Uh, not everybody is, is enlarged by love. Some people are diminished. Same is true with democracies. When you have a democracy, that democracy has to grow and prosper and develop, or it's likely to turn into worse. A democracy is a, is a fragile uh, democratic uh, growth. It, it's no accident that it only came into existence in the last couple of centuries. And it's very important that a democracy, as I say, develop in a fine fashion rather than a sour, bad fashion. And I think this democracy has been deteriorating, uh, not crucially yet, but still deteriorating for the last uh, 10 years and certainly has not gotten better while Bush has been in. He's injured it. I'll even go further. Uh, I think that the leader of a democracy, it's very important that such a leader speak the home language well. Uh, It's important because people take their cue from the President of the United States. Mm. And if he speaks beautifully, speaks well, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt did, people are enlarged, and, and their intelligence develops. Whereas if you speak in cliches all the time, like George Bush, you are doing your best willy-nilly to render the populace a little more stupid. I like duty. Let me talk about duty. Why? Because it needs to get done. This administration has failed to do it. And now we have an urgent duty. We should do it now. Do it. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. 
For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. I have a chance. And frankly, do you? Everybody. Duty. 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 Do our duty. Everybody. Duty. 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 Do our duty. A great duty has been done. I got a question for everybody. I mean, I throw out the phone number since I'm asking a question, but I don't really see the point because I don't think there's an answer. Um, but let me ask you this. Where's the Iraqi army? Where'd they go? They're training. Are they? I don't think they are. McClatchy Newspapers has a story about uh, Pentagon sources unofficially saying, yeah, we kind of gave up on that idea. Now, if you gave up on that idea, McClatchy Newspapers uh, does a very reasonable job of asking then what's the new plan? Look, in, let me explain what the present new plan is, but more importantly, it's what's the future plan, because how are we going to get out of Iraq? But first, in the present, they say, okay, look, here's the memo we received is Iraqi army sucks, and they're never going to get it together. So if you want real security in Iraq, you're going to have to use the U.S. military, right? So we okay, all that training, they're calling it now the... Abizade Casey plan. That didn't really work out. That's we brought in Petraeus. And General Petraeus is going to give us security. Okay, great. All right. Rock and roll. So then, so McClatchy's like, okay, fine. The reporter writes it down. That's the new plan. And then they ask at the end to these sources, um, so how do you plan to get out of Iraq? If you've never trained an Iraqi army, um, who do you hand off to? Or does that mean we have to stay there for how long? I mean, if we're the ones providing security and we don't have any transition plan, what's your backup plan? How long are we expected to provide security? And the basic answer is, yeah, we're taking it one step at a time. You know, we'll get to that next. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, it's like you're climbing a ladder to go up to the roof and, but, you know, to fix the antenna. But you haven't brought any tools to fix the uh, satellite dish there on the top of the roof. So, I mean, it's great, and you're taking it one rung at a time. But, dude, at some point, you're going to get the top of the ladder. And you're going to have to climb back down and get the tools. <laughs> no, but you've already loaned the ladder out. As soon as you get to the top, somebody's going to borrow it. <laughs> yeah, and then you're going to be stuck on the roof. With no tools. See, let me give you one of the paragraphs to end here. Uh, Many officials are vague about when the U.S. will know uh, when troops can begin to return home. General Peter Pace, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said the U.S. is trying to buy, quote, time for the Iraqi government to provide the good governance and the economic activity that's required. What? No, wait, okay. Think about that for a while now. That, By the way, this is not a small, unidentified source. This is the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is General Peter Pace, okay? And he's saying our goal is to buy time for the Iraqi government to provide the good governance and the economic activity that's required. So our now new plan is to wait for the Iraqi economy to turn around and for there to be, quote-unquote, good governance? Well, that's I mean, the plan. And then after, out of, I guess, presumably, out of the good governance and out of the flourishing economy will magically appear in a functioning Iraqi army, and then we'll hand it off to them? This is an awful well, plan. I, I mean, I don't buy any of the good governments or the Iraqi economy. Those are just buzzwords. That's a pleasant way for them to say political solution. We're, gonna, we're buying time until the political situation will allow us to leave. I got you, but I, I mean, I, I, which will be, you know, a decade. 
I mean, you know. No, okay, but let's assume that the political solution is around the corner, right? Which it definitely isn't, and that's the number one problem. But even if you have a political solution, there's no army. So who are you going to hand it off to? Well, I mean, but if there's a political solution, then then the theory is that if there's a political solution, then people aren't fighting, and you can begin to bring troops home. And if people aren't fighting, then you might actually get some some international support. But I mean, it's I, I say that like obviously that's the plan. It's it's pie in the sky. And what people are going to just they want to have a political solution. Everybody, everybody, including Al Qaeda in Iraq and, and all the different militias, they're all going to stop fighting. Yeah. So you're not going to need an Iraq here. No, but, well, no. It sounds like the utopia that Karl Marx used to talk about. You know, at the end of communism, government just melts away because you don't need it anymore. Yeah. Right. Right. Likely. Well, I I remember when the Iraqi government melted away, and we didn't exactly get utopia. No, I mean, look, the, the you know the the oddity is that the, the, the security may come from okay, then you know the 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 the, the Kurdish the militias and the Shiite militias, and they'll constitute a, a a less ragtag bunch of Sunni militias, and then they'll. But we don't even have a plan for that. No, we don't even know what the hell's going to go on. Here's the last paragraph. One State Department official, who also asked not to be named because of the sensitivity of the subject, expressed the same sentiment in blunter terms. Quote. Our strategy now is to basically hold on and wait for the Iraqis to do something. <laughs> Dude, I mean, if you're not getting the memo, we are in a lot of trouble. But not only are we in trouble, Let we don't just, even have a plan to get out of trouble. It's weird. It's almost like no one made a decision, which is odd. Because I understand that if you, uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> if you ask him for uh, what he does. Yeah. Uh, he's a decision-maker. There's a decision-maker in the White House. JR, we have that. By the way, he's not even, that's not, that's not what the president's supposed to do. He's not just supposed to sit like a lump yeah. on a log or whatever on a log and sit there and be like, what decision do I need to make? Yes, I've, I say we need a good economy, not a bad economy. Right. Decision made. I say we invade Iraq, don't invade Iraq. Or invade Iraq, I made a decision. Uh, you're supposed to get engaged. You're supposed to figure out what to do right and wrong. You're supposed to listen for di- from different people. You're supposed to figure it out. From now on. My job is a job to make decisions. I'm a decision... I mean, if the job description were, what do you do? It's decision maker. And I make a lot of big ones, and I make a lot of little ones. <laughs> that was Thursday, by the way. That wasn't like on his first day on the job. That was last Thursday. You know, look, it's. I laughed my ass off in the first hour when we played that. Now, this, upon hearing it the second time, I'm getting the anger is building. Because it, people are dying, man. I mean, it's like, you know, you say that and it seems like politics or it seems like, you know, that's what people always say. But it's real, man. There's, you know, there's people from San Diego and from Oklahoma and from Florida. They go to Iraq and they die because we have a president who's an absolute imbecile, who doesn't know what the hell he's doing at all. He doesn't even have a plan. He doesn't even know where to begin to have a plan. And he sends those kids to to his death. Iraq, my God, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And, you know, some I wrote a post about this, and then some idiot conservative writes back, oh, you know, know, last week we talked about it, Virginia... You know, if that happened, you know, that 3, 4, 10, 60 Virginia attacks happen every single day in Iraq. And they say, oh, you can't compare the two, the idiot conservative says, because the Virginia Tech kids were innocent people, and and all the people Hmm. dying in Iraq are guilty. That's a good one. 
That's not conservative. Just for the record, I'm going to get conservative as a slight break. That's just dumb. I mean, come on. He's like, oh, Jank Uger compares the innocent kids in Virginia Tech to all the insurgents and al-Qaeda and terrorists and all the guilty people dying in Iraq. There's like more than a, maybe, as many, uh, maybe as many as more than 500,000, but certainly more than 100,000 Iraqi deaths. Those are civilians, you idiot. Those are kids, children. So, many they, when they go and blow up, like it's, there's a headline right now. 27 killed in a suicide bombing in Iraq. First of all, I don't know which day it is, because every day there's another 27 and another 67 and another 87, and you can't keep up with whether it was Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. They just keep on coming and coming. Now, out of those 27, one is a suicide bomber. The other 26 are people that were going to school, that were going to work, that were going to the market, just like you and me. I know they're Iraqis, so to, to the conservative blogger mind, that equals guilty. Some of them may have been going to class. Although there's no one left to teach those classes at uh, at university. Also, you know, you're talking about uh, uh, that uh, you know the post you wrote and how that that what happened at Virginia Tech happens every day in Iraq. You know, um, it, it also goes to the that argument also goes to the gun argument. Uh, you know, because they keep you know if everybody had a gun, it'd be a lot less violent. I got news for you, everybody in Iraq's got a gun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How's that working out? Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, look, I don't think that's a fair argument. Right? Because there's a war going on. I understand that. But the argument that it's going to be better when everyone has a gun is also ridiculous. And my favorite argument that I heard was, uh, uh, was the, 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 the real winner was that, you know, they're always talking about liberals are always saying, go, uh, this was on conservative talk radio, which I listened to a ton when I was in Atlanta, uh, that uh, liberals are always talking about how, uh, you know, what do we want to go back to the wild, wild west? Well, what they don't know is that the, in the wild, wild west, it was safer. <laughs> right, and and uh, you know, is it that, that because people knew that if you cross somebody, that that guy you were crossing had a gun, and there'd be retribution. And I thought, what crime stats do you have from Deadwood in 1884? <laughs> what numbers are you looking at there? I see here that in the Black Hills in 1891, <laughs> the murder rate was only 1.1 percent per capita. What? Are you talking about? First of all, you're entirely right. There are no crime stats. He's they're full of crap. Second of all. Dude, they had shootouts all the time, <laughs> and at least one person died in the shootout. Okay, and a lot of times two people died. In and the if shootout. you got shot in the hand, you died. By the way. <laughs> okay, uh, number two. That's why a lot of the sheriffs, when people came to town, would take their guns. How do I know? I saw the movies. Okay, why do they take <laughs> the guns? I'm an expert. I've seen a lot of movies. Right. By the way, how much of those conservative talk shows know? Nothing. They know the same thing. They watch the movies. <laughs> right. Okay. It's no, they've like, seen the. It's crime. not like they studied the history of the wild, wild west and the Black Hills of South Dakota. Please. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, uh, the reason they take the guns away, the sheriff does. Is because if people have them, they have shootouts, people die. Okay. Now, but, you know, you're right that the analogy is a little unfair because Iraq's in the middle of a war. But it's also entirely fair because the I, but the point the conservatives are trying to make is, hey, you know what? If uh, the other side has guns too, then nobody will do violence because they'll, they'll be scared and intimidated, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I guess the Sunnis have stopped. Because they know the Shiites have no, guns. No, no, that's a point I'm, I'm exactly making. I want everybody's got a gun, and, and neither side is discouraged by the weaponry of the other side. So the Sunnis kill, you know, 27, 67, 87 every single day, and then the Shiites come back and shoot the Sunnis in the back of the head, and 24 bodies, 48 bodies, 50 bodies show up the next day in the gutter with a bullet hole in the back of the head with a gun from a gun. Hey, and the next day the Sunnis keep going and going and going. You know where there's a lot of uh, uh, where, where, where people are armed? Uh, uh, Inner-city gangs. 
Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people being armed. That's my understanding, because I watched The Shield. Right. And I, that's why the Bloods and the Crips haven't yeah. had an act of violence <laughs> right. in decades. Fortunately, in inner city Los Angeles involving gangs, there is no violence. Yeah. Because they know there'll be retribution. Oh, that's comforting. All of a sudden, that seems like a much better point.